And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Good morning and welcome to the Daily Ding here on the Athletic Podcast Network. We are going to catch you up on everything that happens in Thursday in the association, everything that happened in the final day before the All-Star break, the end of the unofficial first half of the NBA season. I am Jared Weiss. I am joined today by a special new guest, Alex Schiffer, the Brooklyn Nets writer from The Athletic. How you doing today, Schiff? I'm good, man. I appreciate you uh, offering me to co-host. I hope to make the most of this 10-day contract. <laughs> this is this is a, a one-hour contract, actually. But uh, I'm excited to have Schiff on because we were originally just going to have him on for one uh, section of the show where we were going to talk about a new story that he has out where he's asked a bunch of point guards from around the NBA about how they grew up idolizing Kyrie Irving. And nothing makes me feel older than talking about people growing up idolizing Kyrie Irving, who I'm pretty sure is like two years younger than I am. So I can't wait to get into that. But, you know, we figure, what the hell? Let's just have Shift do the whole show with me anyway. So let's start with the most exciting game from Thursday night, Milwaukee versus Memphis. Milwaukee wins 112 to 111 on a Drew Holiday game winner right after John Morant looked like he had hit a game winner. Milwaukee, they go out in transition after Morant hit a really impressive layup, taking it right to, was it, I think, Dante DiVincenzo in isolation. But DiVincenzo, we quickly outletted it to Drew Holiday. Holiday flies down the court and hits a fadeaway in the corner to win it, and then you know, the Grizzlies couldn't really get a good look off after that. So a really thrilling ending to what looked like it was going to be a huge upset for the Grizzlies up until that final moment. Yeah, for sure. You know, Two goaltending calls late in the game, two that were pretty key. I didn't get to see an instant replay in either one of them, but I thought both of them were a little questionable. But as you said, I mean, Milwaukee's been missing Holiday for that, that time he was out, and I love Memphis as a young team. I mean, Morant's one of the best young point guards in the NBA. I mean, I've watched Kyle Anderson since he was in high school. I always thought that he would be a little more of an NBA player than he was, but it's nice to see him have some success. I mean, it was a fun game. And, you know, Memphis obviously was in the play-in game last year. I'm I'm really curious to see what they can do in the second half of the season and if they can maybe push for a, for a play-in spot and, and see where they can go with their playoff perspectives, even, even in the loaded West. I mean, Memphis is, uh, I think, 16 and 16 after this game, so they would be contending for first place if they were in the Eastern Conference, but unfortunately for them, they're in the Western Conference, and they've been doing it without Triple J, so very excited to see how much better this team gets when they get arguably their second best player back in the second half of the season, and they just got Justice Winslow back, and he had 10 rebounds in 24 minutes in this game, but let's focus on the Bucks because the Bucks are a team that they haven't quite been dominant this year and we know that they're capable of it. And I mean, this certainly wasn't a dominant game for them by any means, but with drew holiday back, they're getting back the guy that they just sold the farm for. And obviously is the guy that's going to really reinvent this team's capability. He came off the bench 
had 15 points in 23 minutes in this game. He looked pretty solid, obviously hit the game-winning shot. I mean, how does Milwaukee look now in full form to you? I think they look pretty good. You know, I, I haven't been able to see them play the Sixers this year, and, and that's, to me, I mean, obviously the Sixers, no one was expecting them to be what they are right now, but... Obviously, you know, the, the the Bucks remind me so much of the Nets, both historically and currently, because as you said, I mean, both franchises sold the farm for a star player to appease their current stars. You know, you go back to the 70s when both were probably at their most relevant with Dr. J for the Nets and, and Kareem with the Bucks, uh, which is also coincidentally the last time they won titles. So I, they just have so much in common to me for, for battling the top of the East. And, you know, I mean, Middleton gave them a good game with, with 22 points despite the rough shooting night. You know, the free throws were key with him. And, you know, their depth obviously isn't what it used to be, but I, I think they still have a pretty good bench with, with Connaughton and Portis. You know, DJ Augustin is obviously a guy that has been a serviceable NBA backup point guard for throughout his career. So, I mean, you know, I, I think that they're improved and, and they look better with him for sure. But, I mean, I, I just wonder about that bench in the playoffs and, and who's the guy that they can kind of lean on in that second unit to give them a bucket when, when the starters are out. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming Drew Holiday is going to supplant DJ Augustine in the starting lineup once he you know gets his feet under him after the break. So you're looking at that bench rotation being Augustine as the point, Connaughton as the main three and D guy, Portis coming in for Lopez, who you know he could do some of the stretch big stuff, and then it's kind of you know questionable from there. They have uh, Thanasis Atentacupo is kind of taken on that. I guess that you know that four and D role that like you know the guy that backs up the three and D guy, and then Bryn Forbes who they brought in as a sniper, but he doesn't really do much besides that. So they don't quite. It doesn't seem like they don't have that George Hill necessarily that sticks out that comes off the bench and is a real you know elite shot hitter knows how to you know, knows how to make plays and can defend pretty much anybody. But at the same time, they they now have that guy Drew Holiday in the starting lineup. So that's kind of the price that they paid, right, to do that. So I do think this team is probably gonna continue to be an elite team, but they should have the ability to outpace the other teams, and we haven't seen that quite yet. Let's head out to DC where the Wizards beat the Clippers. I mean, not a surprise. We're talking about the best team in the NBA after all with the Washington Wizards who just can't stop winning for some reason. So they beat the Clippers 119 to 117. Paul George did not play in this game, should be noted. But Bradley Beal, 33 points again, which I don't even know why we mention it. That's what he averages. It's not a big deal anymore. That's what he does. Russell Westbrook, 27 points, 11 assists, 9 rebounds, nearly a triple-double. I don't know why we're mentioning it. It's what he does. Pretty well-rounded game for Washington. Davis Bertans had a good game. I mean, he got the contract, and then he's kind of been spotty this year. He, he looked good for them. I mean, Robin Lopez gave them some buckets. I kind of thought when, when the Westbrook wall trade went down that Washington could be maybe competitive for a, a low seed or play-in tournament type thing for them this year, and... You know, I mean, they, they, they were awful at the beginning. And they've slowly gotten better. I think that that's still kind of reasonable. I know that they're kind of right outside the conversation, I think, in the East for the, the playing tournament. But they have probably one of the best backcourts in the league just based on, on Beal and Westbrook alone. And then, you know, they, they have a decent supporting cast. It's not great by any means, but, you know, it, it's not a bunch of nobodies either at the same time. I mean, you know, Robin Lopez, you know, gave Milwaukee good minutes when he was there. You know, Bertans just got the contract, as I mentioned. You know, I, I didn't know a lot about Denny going into the draft, but, I mean, he, he seems to have, you know, been good early on or, you know, above average for your rookie. 
So, I mean, I'm kind of curious to see what this team can do in the second half of the season, just because, I mean, just because of their two stars and then, you know, Wagner, Rui. And given it's the East, you know, I feel like there is something for them to be playing for in the second half, no? Oh, for sure. I mean, they're 14 and 20, which is not good, but they're only a game and a half, I believe, behind the Pacers. They're only a game and a half behind the Pacers for the 10th spot in that chance to face whoever ends up in six, which right now you lose one game and you go from fourth place to ninth place all of a sudden. So it changes so fast. But yeah, I mean, it's really hard not to be in the mix. Pretty much everybody except for Detroit is in the mix to try to nab a playoff spot right now in the Eastern Conference. So, I mean, that's not surprising. It's still pretty early in the season. And Washington, they they have really been on the upswing. And I think a big part of that is that Russell, Russell Westbrook has just really found his balance and he's been playing much more efficiently and much more well-rounded. But also, yeah, that their supporting cast is definitely coming into its own. Where Breton's three for six, he gets some eleven points. Avdia with seven rebounds. I mean, like everybody's really contributing. It's a well, a well-distributed, well-balanced performance. Nobody. It's not really like they're reliant. I mean, they're relying on Westbrook and Beal to really carry the offense. And both of those guys got to the line fifteen times in this game. But. Everyone is contributing in a pretty even level, which is something that I just don't think was happening at the beginning of the year. Kawhi Leonard, he had a solid game. Pat Bev had a solid game. But it was really the Clippers bench that stepped up in this one. You know, uh, Luke Kennard, he went four for five from deep. Zubots was a force down low. Lou Will had a pretty solid performance. And Terrence Mann got to the line. He was eight for eight at the line in this game. To have a guard getting to the line off the bench eight times, it's pretty impressive. I know that the Clippers lost this game, but is is this? do you think this is a high note for them to go into the into the all-star break with their bench performing well, which is something that's really vital to them actually being able to get over the top this year. I'm not really worried about them right now. As you said, PG didn't play. You know, their their two low marks for the game were Batum and Serge Ibaka, who combined for, you know, two for 12 from the field, nine points. And, you know, both of those guys have, have aged pretty well into their careers. And, and I don't see them both having a bad game on the same night that often. So as you said, I mean, you know, Kennard, I thought, was, was huge for them. He hit a lot of deep threes. I mean, Lou Will is Lou Will. You know, I, I was a fan of Terrence Mann when he was in college. I don't really think this is a loss that you can kind of point to and and, and sound the fire alarm for. I, I really don't. So, and, and I want to say, and, and Marcus Morris didn't play either, and obviously he's a big part of their bench too and what they do. So, I'm not really worried about them, honestly, going into the break. I mean, I think the West is interesting because you have a team like Phoenix and Utah at the top and then the two L.A. teams. You know, how that kind of unfolds in the second half is going to be really interesting to me, but I just don't think it's it's panic time or, or anything close to that with a game like this, especially without, without two of their main guys. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Discover the latest collections from David Yerman, as seen recently, styled on basketball stars like Jaime Jaquez, Jalen Green, D'Angelo Russell, and others. David Yerman is a celebrated American jewelry company inspired by the beauty of art, architecture, and the natural world. The story of David Yerman begins in New York City with David, a sculptor, and his wife, Sybil, a painter and ceramicist. When the artists began collaborating, their goal was to simply make beautiful designed objects to wear. Over 40 years later, the Yermans and their son, Evan, continue to redefine American luxury jewelry with timeless modern collections for women and men defined by inspiration, innovation, consummate craftsmanship, and Cable, the brand's artistic signature. David Yerman's collections are available on davidyerman.com. Let's get to the news, and uh, today was a good one for it because Shams Jirania dropped a just like a notebook full of news of just like rumor season is taken off here, and there's so much to sift through. Let's sift through some of the stuff that we have in here. The most interesting one is him and the Athletics James Edwards reporting that the Pistons are working towards a contract buyout with Blake Griffin, which is you know something that we've known for a while, and I think they've already reported. But Wayne Ellington was the other one there, and I'm glad I have you here because you are covering the obvious kind of you know buyout team du jour every year there's one team that's like the obvious first choice for a buyout play and the nets are pretty obviously going to be active on the buyout market and they're going to probably be the top team on the buyout market so what did you think of what was reported and what did you see in that story as potential avenues that the nets could go down yeah, you know, I mean, we were talking earlier about all these teams that are still in the mix for the playoffs, especially in the East because of the, the playing tournament outside of Detroit. And that's why I'm kind of curious to see what the buyout market looks like, because I think a lot of these teams that, that are in the mix for that, especially with, you know, fans coming back and the ticket revenue but starting to open up again, how many teams are really going to part ways with some of those guys when they have a chance to make the playoffs? So I, I think the buyout market might be a little more depressed than, than in years past. You know, with Blake Griffin particularly, I don't really know what he adds to them. I mean, the, the biggest thing with the Nets right now is the defense, right? I mean, the, the offense is already historic, and they've been doing all this without Kevin Durant, you know, who's missed nine straight games with a hamstring strain. I mean, I, I think their addition should be focused on the defensive side of the ball, and he doesn't really give them a lot there. You know, the, the one thing he would give them if they were to add him, he's still got the playmaking ability a little bit, and... They don't really have a guy at the four. You know, Jeff Green's been great for them as a, as a spot-up shooter, and, you know, he can still dunk a little bit. But he doesn't have the playmaking aspect that, that Blake Griffin does in some of the passing. I mean, you know, I think Blake Griffin's averaged, you know, over six assists a game for, for you know, during the prime of his career, and it, it was still up, you know, four or five in, in recent years, and, and Jeff Green just isn't really that guy. But do they really need that? Is that the best way to spend their money there? when they have much more bigger issues on defense. And, and, you know, to kind of segue, I mean, you know, another thing came up in that story was that the Nets are very interested in P.J. Tucker, which I had heard nothing but the same even prior to today with, with Shams' news. I mean, the, the Nets have made it very known in, in the back channels that they'd like P.J. Tucker, it seems like. And, you know, I don't know about you, man, but I think he'd be a great addition. You know, it seems like the Nets are, are like this weird reunion group of the, the Kyrie, Joe Harris, Cavalier years with Shump on the team, too. And, you know, they have some Thunder reunion in them with James, KD, and um, Andre Roberson. And now they're trying to get, you know, even in some th- some Rockets overlap, given that Green, Shump, Harden, a bunch of those guys all played there together for D'Antoni. 
I think P.J. Tucker helps them defensively, but I don't think it changes their outlook currently, and which obviously starts with the big three buying in on that side of the ball and, and finding ways to get stops. What is their biggest need defensively? DeAndre Jordan gives them something, but you know I, I think a, a rim protector for sure. I mean, Nick Clax has been playing well, so what do they do with him there? And and you know they've used Durant as a five. I just think they need someone that can can take the load defensively off Durant for the playoffs. That's not really a great answer, but it's the biggest thing because right now, based on the roster structure, that's what they're banking on is him giving them a lot there on that that side of the floor. I think it's a great answer. I enjoyed it very much, and I think that Bruce Brown has been has very clearly established his role and. We know that they're probably going to be closing with Durant at the five in all likelihood, unless it's a night where Jeff Green is really on top of his game. But so I'm surprised that you didn't bring up another point of attack defender, which I feel like most people thought was going to be their biggest issue. It was like they have a bunch of somewhat competent wing defenders, and of course they have Brown. But besides Brown, they don't really have anybody else that could be the guy that you throw on the other team's star and expect them to be able to handle guarding that star for 40 possessions a game. So do you think that's someone they're still going to target? Yeah, no, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, Brown being 6'4", you think about some of the guys that they're going to see in the playoffs, he's ineffective against Embiid. He's a mismatch against Ben Simmons. You know, we talked about the Bucks earlier, kind of a similar deal there. I guess he could match up a bit against Drew Holiday, but... I feel like they need, you know, that that six seven guy that, and, and Tucker gives him a little more size and length there, which is why it makes sense that that he can help there. You know, down low, I mean, Embiid. I think that's where DeAndre Jordan is going to be called on the most during the playoffs if they were to cross paths. But I, I agree that that a point of attack defender is a good way to look at. You know, with the roster fluctuation, I mean, they have Shumpert and and Roberson on ten way, ten day contracts currently anyway. So you kind of wonder. I mean, Roberson's give them something there, but you know, offensively, he's. He's looked awful, but you know, again, they don't really need that from him. You know, is is his defense enough in their eyes to to keep him around, or do they think there's a better option out there? So I I think that I think Tucker makes a lot of sense, and I, I think a point of attack defender is a good way to put it. I just think you look at their bench, and they don't really bring a lot defensively off there, at least with Brown in the starting lineup currently. But but obviously he'd be off the bench when they're fully healthy. I guess a point of attack defender is a good way to put it. You know, there really isn't, you know, Drummond to me is kind of a, I don't think he really works because they, they really have a similar guy to him in, in Jordan. You think they'd want to use it on a different different type of player there? You don't think they want to take away the worst isolation score uh, in the NBA or put him in the mix and take him away from the three best isolation scores in the NBA? I'm shocked to hear that. All right, let's move on from the Nets. That's enough Nets talk for one day. We're going to do it a thousand times anyway on this show throughout the year. Now, let's talk about the Timberwolves, a team that we usually don't talk about enough, but we've been talking about them a ton over the last week or so. So one of the interesting nuggets from the Shams piece was that they've shown interest in two, the two kind of sub-star level power forwards on the market in John Collins and Aaron Gordon. And that's really interesting because, I mean, we know that this team is in the rebuilds, but I think this team kind of clearly feels like they're they're past the re part of it and they're in the build up part of it now. And for them to go for one of those guys means they are certainly gunning for the playoffs. I'd imagine if they're trying to make this move now, as opposed to waiting till the off season. And after they already made a coaching change, that's a pretty interesting uh, move for them to make. I'm looking at the standings. Now there are 11 games behind the Grizzlies for that 10th spot to be even in the play and talk. 
I mean, D'Angelo Russell's obviously out for a while. You know, they traded for him for the Carl Towns pairing with him, and they, they've, I think it's five games they've played together. They haven't really been able to even see what that can do. Anthony Edwards has been good for them. I mean, obviously, he's not going to win Rookie of the Year based on the way LaMelo Bowles played, and, and, you know, I think my second vote for that would be Tyrese Halliburton probably, but I think he's been pretty good in a draft that no one really knew what was going to happen there. But, you know, you, you look at Collins, Rare, and Gordon, they don't have a guy on the roster that has that athleticism that either one of those guys have. I mean... Collins is terrific at slipping ball screens and giving defenses problems with that. I definitely think that, that either one of those guys could help them. But, I mean, they're, they're just so far away from contention. What what does a trade look like for either one of those guys? What are the assets you're giving up? And, and I mean, I, I'm pretty sure this, this upcoming draft is pretty good. And, I mean, with them riding shotgun for a lottery pick right now and a high one, I don't see the reason to give up a bounty for one of those guys just based on how far out they are. Did someone else have their pick? I'm trying to think. The Golden State Warriors have their pick, but it's top three protected. And it's like it, they so obviously have to tank. So a good way that you could tank is just to not make this trade now. It's not tanking, and it's avoiding improving your fortunes right now and increasing the risk of you falling out of the uh, out of the top three. And most importantly, it's not top four protected, which is how the lottery works now. It's top three protected. So they could end up in a situation where they have the worst record in the league and three other teams win the lottery and push it to four, and then Golden State gets it. So it's like they don't really have any control over the situation, but you certainly want to maximize your odds of retaining your pick. Last thing that we should hit on real quick, I, I just want your take on this the Celtics were mentioned twice in the story one as them targeting Jeremy Grant the wing in Detroit who has been phenomenal this season and then also as one of the teams that could get in the mix for Nick Vucevic in Orlando the all-star center if he ends up on the market uh, obviously they can't get both of those guys I think they'd probably be happy with either one of those we have stories up on the athletic with a round table with Josh Robbins our magic writer myself and our other Celtics writer Jay King debating the Nikola Vucevic situation I have another piece up on the Jeremy Grant situation I think Jay also has a piece on the Jeremy Grant situation so we've already talked about it enough I, I want to get your take on whether you think the Celtics should try to use all of their picks a bunch of their prospects like a you know a Drew Hall holiday-esque trade package to try to see if they could bring one of those guys to the table. It would definitely be interesting. And, you know, they're another team that, you know, you already kind of talked about earlier just how, I guess this might have even been off show, just how, you know, the Celtics have been struggling. Brad Stevens said this current stretch would, would be huge for their season. They took care of business tonight against Toronto, but still I have a hard time just seeing with where they currently are now, holding their own against Milwaukee and, and Brooklyn and, and Philly. To me, obviously, you go you go for Grant just based on that he's younger and he's playing. He's having a, he's having a terrific season. You know, I don't think that the center position is maybe the the biggest problem for the Celtics. But granted, I don't I don't watch them every day. I'm impartial to watching Taco Paul play. If if we're talking about uh, Celtic centers anyway, one day I'll tell you my Taco Paul story and why I don't think he he likes me at all based on the one interaction we've ever had. But you know, Orlando's just a crazy situation right now where it seems like they're going to be big-time sellers based on between him and Gordon and just the way they're playing right now. But, I mean, I feel like in the NBA, age is so important, and, and Vucevic already being 30, I feel like Grant gives you more of the long-term potential there. And he is from the Northeast, not that that went to DeMatha High School, the, the powerhouse in, in Maryland. Maybe that resonates with him being closer to home. I just think if you're going to go after one of those guys, it's Grant. I think both teams, you know, would take some collection of the, the Celtics young guys just based on where they're at as an organization. I mean, who who do you think they would throw in there? Are we talking Grant Williams or 
Bob Williams. Who do you think oh. would be the first calls for a trade? Don't call him Bob. That's the only name you're not supposed to call him. But uh, it's funny you mentioned Grant Williams because Grant Williams hasn't been playing at all this year, except he played against Toronto on Thursday night and had a tremendous game. That's how it tends to go for Grant Williams. He doesn't play for two weeks, and then he comes back in and he has like a 13-point game. But so, you know, the Celtics, they have a lot of solid young prospects that probably could be good rotation players, but there's nobody that stands out as a potential franchise cornerstone of their young guys. Obviously they have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. So they're in this weird position where if they're trying to trade for an all-star caliber player, they can't offer a potential future all-star in return, but they could overwhelm you with a bunch of really good young players and a bunch of draft picks. And I think that's probably the route that they're going to have to take, but I'm not going to give away everything because I, we do, I am going to force people to go read the story. So make sure you go to that story. You could subscribe over at the athletic.com slash daily dang. And then, of course, the other news that happened at night was the All-Star Draft happened. And besides some Utah Jazz slander at the end, it wasn't terribly eventful. But unsurprisingly, Team Durant, first pick, Kyrie Irving. They also have Joel Embiid, Kawhi Leonard, Bradley Beal, and Jason Tatum, the brothers from St. Louis, finally get to play together for the first time in their lives. And then their reserves are, unsurprisingly, James Harden, Devin Booker, Zion Williamson, Zach Levine, Julius Randle, Nick Vucevic, and Donovan Mitchell. Team LeBron, first pick, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, Nikola Jokic, uh, and then he also has LeBron. And then the reserves, he took Dame first, then he took Ben Simmons, got to support the Clutch fam, CP3, Jalen Brown, Paul George, who we called his rival, I believe, Domas Sabonis, and Rudy Gobert. Note that the Jazz players are the last two taken. I thought that was pretty hilarious, and uh, Charles Barkley made sure that everybody noticed that. Kyrie Irving, first pick in this draft. Not a shocker. Kyrie Irving kind of is the ultimate all-star player. He's uh, pretty much a can't-miss flashy player, makes incredible plays all the time. So he's an inspiration to a lot of great, you know, a lot of young players coming up. And so you had a brilliant story concept, and it's out on The Athletic. Walk us through it. Yeah, so this is a story that I actually started working on last year, pre-COVID, before, you know, when, when we had these wonderful things called open locker rooms that I hope we see sometime soon. I started out just trying to gauge, you know, growing up in New Jersey when when the Jason Kidnets were a big thing, you know, I, I remember, you know, he used to kiss the kiss the blow a kiss toward the rim when he shot the free throws, and a ton of kids used to imitate that, you know, when I was growing up, so that kind of stuck with me, and you know, you look at Kyrie the way he's become a shoe inspiration, and obviously his handles and some of his finishes, so I I just started kind of pulling young point guards around the NBA. My kind of cutoff was around my own age of twenty five to kind of you know guys that would have been able to see him. His early years in the NBA, obviously, his college career at Duke wasn't much. And kind of see, you know, how much they try and take from his game. Do they even bother? Is he even a guy they, you know, look up to? The results were really interesting. You know, you had guys like Trey Young and Donovan Mitchell saying how they try and study him a ton and try and go from, you know, incorporating his pregame workout routine into their own to his finishes and his handles to, to guys like Zach Levine, who he'll play with on Team Durant Sunday, saying... I've worked out with Kyrie and I just can't do what he does and it's a waste of my time to even try. So I thought it was really interesting kind of seeing the range of his influence and seeing those that, that follow him religiously, those that kind of pick and choose the one or two things they think they can do or some version of and the, the others that even just say it's not worth my time. 
By the way, if anyone didn't know about the Jason Kidd uh, blowing the kiss thing, you should definitely look up why he did that. Very interesting backstory there. <laughs> we don't have to get into that here. But I mean, Kyrie is such a fascinating player. He talks a lot about how basketball is his like art craft and how it's it's an aesthetic game for him. And I think he probably embodies that more than anybody in this generation where it's very evident his New York you know, playground roots when you watch him play. You know, half the time when you watch him play, I feel like I'm watching an N1 mixtape. Uh, you know, it's like the just like the style, the way that he will, you know, sit back and use his dribble moves as kind of like a, a pause almost in his drive. But at the same time, while he has so much of that flash, he also has remarkable efficiency and proficiency and an incredible, probably like the widest variety of different types of dribbles and drives and types of footwork and types of shots of anybody in the league. What's interesting to me is that he's very cognizant of the fact that he has kids looking up to him for the way he plays. You know, he said after a, a blowout win in Oklahoma City late January, which I touched on the story, how, you know, he's big on finishing with both his left and his right hand because he thinks that, you know, sometimes kids get pigeonholed into, you know, you're a lefty, so you should finish lefty or, or vice versa. And, and he said, you know, you have two hands, you should be using both for a reason. So I, I thought what was most interesting is, you know, some celebrities or athletes kind of talk about yeah you know i they, they look up to me but you know I'm, I'm not focused on that or you know i i'm just trying to uh, set a good example like i'm not a role model Kyrie is um uh, <laughs> Kyrie is um very cognizant of the fact that he's being watched and he doesn't let that go to waste you know what i mean he he kind of bases sometimes his performance on what what he thinks people should be doing that that emulate him so i i thought that was kind of a unique thing from him too is just how how aware he is that he's being watched in that vein you know, he never would have gotten the impression that Kyrie Irving noticed that people were paying attention to him. Never, never would have gotten that. What do you think is the most interesting thing from your story? Or rather, the second most interesting so that people still have something to go there for. But what do you think is the real hook and moment from that story that will really stand out for the readers? Some of these guys, all-star caliber players, I, I'll be bland so that, that they go check it out. But um. Talk about how, you know, when, when they're guarding him or watching him in a game, sometimes they can't help but find themselves studying him, even though he, he might be their assignment or the one reason they're winning or losing. I thought that was really interesting. And, and even just the, the guys that have kind of found different ways to take certain things from, whether it's you know his handle or whether it's Jalen Brunson even talked about how he just, he was he it took him kind of maybe being on the opposite end of, of some of Irving's play to realize how his routine goes into a game. So I, I really think there's a little bit of everything in there, and that, that's what made it so interesting, is that it's not like it's just one thing everyone's trying to take. There really is a lot there. All right, well, be sure to go read that over on The Athletic. really is a fascinating story. And that's going to do it for today's show. Don't forget about all the other podcasts that we have here on The Athletic Podcast Network, like No Dunks, House of Strauss, of course, The Athletic NBA Show. We have tons of team podcasts. And of course, we have your favorite, The Daily Ding. So be sure to download the app. You can get all of our podcasts ad free in the app. Make sure you subscribe to the show if you're not subscribed already. Leave a five-star review talking about how sultry my voice sounds early in the morning. And of course, be sure to follow all of Alex's work and my work as well over on The Athletic. A big thank you to producer Brian Smith, who I forgot to shout out on the top of the show. He's so integral that we even forget that he's there. So that's going to do it for us here. Schiff, take us out of here.
yeah, have a good weekend, everybody. Enjoy the All-Star game. I know I'll be enjoying being able to wake up in the morning and not have to worry about practice or a game for the first time in, in months. And uh, stay safe out there. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.